Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre. Hello, Caroline. Hi. This week, we're going to take you inside... Well, listen, in the past, we've covered some creatures coming from outer space down to Earth. Mm Mm-hmm. But this week, from what I understand, Carrie, we're going to tell some terrifying stories of men going into outer space. Yeah, this week we're going to be talking about the lost cosmonauts, which is the subject of a conspiracy theory alleging that some Soviet cosmonauts went into outer space, including several before the first documented manned space flight by Yuri Gagarin in 1961, but their existence has never been publicly documented by Soviet or Russian space authorities, mostly because their missions ended in failure and death. Oh, that doesn't make any sense that a government would lie to the world, though, especially not the Soviets and especially not at the height of the Cold War. Yeah, they weren't cagey at all, right? Still aren't. (laughs) Yeah, so the story of the lost cosmonauts is a fascinating story with a lot of twists and turns. And it really captured my imagination when I first heard about it 10 years ago, give or take. Um, I had never even thought of anything like this. uh, And it really creeped me out in like a fundamental way. (laughs) So let's start with the origins of the story. It really begins with the space race, which took root in the mid 20th century. So at this time, America was in the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and both were competing to achieve superior spaceflight capability and competing for everything else, too. Right. (laughs) But you you have to. Obviously, this is all backgrounded by the threat of nuclear war, right? Like if we can put a base on the moon or in orbit, we can nuke the Russians. Yeah, it really originated in the missile based nuclear arms race between the two countries, and that was kicked into gear post World War Two. So it was kind of thought that the technological advantage of successful spaceflight was seen as necessary to national security. But more than that, it became a fight for superiority in general between the two, with outer space being the great unknown and whoever figured out safe travel there becoming the first to conquer a new frontier. So speaking of firsts, we have Laika, the first living Earth-born creature in orbit. Officially. And Alika was a puppy. Yeah. She was was she a German Shepherd? You know, I'm not sure. I've seen pictures of she's, her. I think she's yeah, probably a mutt, pictures. but she looks she looks shepherdy. Just a stray mongrel, but she does look shepherdy. She was launched aboard Sputnik 2 from the Soviet Union in November 1957. Though she made it into orbit successfully, she passed away between five and seven hours into the flight and was not able to be recovered successfully. Did they say what she died from? Just kind of being panicked, a panicked dog in a spaceship? Yeah. Can you imagine? What do you think a dog thinks as I it's really, going into space? I really don't want to. This story in particular makes me like sick and feel like crying. So I don't really want to talk about it too much. Given what a stressful situation riding in a car is for our dog. Yeah, um, I can't imagine what uh, Laika went through. So I'll just end this story with a quote by senior Soviet scientist Oleg Gazenko from 1998. The more time passes, the more I'm sorry about it. We did not learn enough from the mission to justify the death of the dog. 
So perhaps they've grown since then, but at the time, it seems that death was just another accepted side effect of trying to be the first into orbit. It also seems like it was just on the ledger sheet to begin with. So you said it was not able to be recovered. Was there ever a plan to recover this dog? I don't think so. I think if she came back and it was good, it would have been a, a great thing well, yeah, but for them, but I don't think they were expecting it. Sputnik 2 also implies to me this was a satellite. Were they just going to leave it up there? I don't know. I don't think they were expecting much. I think they were just leaving Laika up there. You're making me sadder. Let's let's keep going. <laughs> I can't deal with the, the dog. If, it was, if it's a person, at least they made that choice. I can't deal with the dog. So the United States began their space program uh, in earnest with Project Mercury, the first human spaceflight program of the U.S., and that was in 1958. Project Mercury's goal was to put a man into Earth orbit and return him safely, and hopefully to do so before the Soviet Union managed to. A select group of astronauts, the Mercury 7, were selected to fly the spacecraft for the program and became the first astronauts in American history. Literally, that job didn't exist before this. So there were seven of them? Mm-hmm. The Mercury 7. Uh, one of them was John Glenn. Oh, sure. You know, known figures in uh, space history. So as we're starting our space program, we began to try and figure out what the Soviets had going on in theirs, kind of like America and Germany racing to create the first nuclear bomb during World War II. You gotta know what the other side is doing. The best encouragement for scientific and technological breakthroughs have always been like competition or necessity. For sure, yeah. That's, uh, actually, that's why capitalism works as well as it does. Sure. Uh, and this was seen as both. It was, a, it was a fight, and it was also necessary to win. The Soviets uh, were extremely secretive about their space program. Again, just like with everything else, uh, they weren't really out in the open talking about stuff, really. Uh, there wasn't much public discussion of the program on the Soviet end, but a kind of vague idea began to emerge that the Soviet space program was rumored to be focused on three World War II veterans named Bolokhanev, Kachor, and Groshev, with a fourth unnamed participant being rumored to have been killed in a training accident. So these were their astronauts? Now, Co Sorry, cosmonauts? Yes, I was just going to say, Russian astronauts are called cosmonauts, so that's why it's the lost cosmonauts, not the lost astronauts. From the cosmos! <laughs> uh... So, yeah, so it seemed that they were beginning their actual training. Um, further proof came in a 1959 article titled Flights to High Altitudes in the Russian weekly photo magazine Ogonyok. Oh, I love that one. <laughs> which showed doctors, technicians, and subjects testing life support equipment. Now, the three subjects shown were Bolokhanev, Kachor, and Grashev. So... I don't think they said specifically that this was for the cosmonaut program, but it seemed like it was from this picture. And the lack of a fourth cosmonaut seemed to solidify the existence that this fourth was lost. Oh, but isn't this picture the only, this is the only evidence you've presented me so far that there were cosmonauts at the time, right? Yes. So then but they're like, but the fourth one's not there. So we know he was lost. Well, it's like I, maybe he wasn't there. I think it was rumored that there were four. Three of them were these guys. And then this picture came out after the rumor. So it was like, oh, well, we were right. But there was a fourth. What happened to him? Paul is dead. <laughs> yes. 
Around this time, there was an information leak by a high-ranking Czech communist about alleged aspects of the Soviet space program. In the leak, a cosmonaut named Alexei Lodovsky was mentioned as being launched inside a, convert, inside a converted R-5A rocket. I was certain you were going to say inside a converted RV. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like a converted Soviet... Converted VW. That's a Soviet space program. <laughs> In Soviet Russia, vacation takes you... To space. Clearly, as the Russians didn't boast about their successful space flight, he either didn't make it up or didn't make it home. Three more names of alleged cosmonauts claimed to have perished under similar circumstances were Andrei Mitkov, Sergei Shiborin, and Maria Gromova. You're doing a great job with these names, by the way. Uh, my character in Dungeons and Dragons uh, is a dwarf, and in our mythology, that means she has a Russian accent. So that's the only reason why I know how to do a Russian accent. And what is her name, Caroline? Gwendolyn Moonbringer. Thank you. Mm-hmm. In December 1959, the Italian news agency Continentale repeated these claims and the four names with no other evidence of Soviet suborbital crude flights ever coming to light. So we have four names of other possible lost cosmonauts. Who knows if this high-ranking Czech communist was telling the truth or not. Do all uh, eight of these people disappear from history? I mean, there's no records of what they were doing? I think I think there's no records. But who knows? In 1960, sci-fi author Robert A. Heinlein wrote in an article that, when traveling in Vilnius, Soviet Lithuania, in May of 1960, he was told by Red Army cadets that the USSR had launched a human into orbit that day. But this assertion was denied later, later that same day by Soviet officials. So he had been told by some cadets, oh, yeah, you know, we're launching a guy into space today. It's big stuff. But later, uh, when he brought it up to other officials that he might have been traveling with, um, they were like, oh, no, no, that didn't happen. I think this is a very strange. I don't know why you would have a secret space program. We can get to it later. Yeah. So but here, all I'll say is that um, soldiers say all kinds of dumb things to each other, I bet. Sure. They said all of the cadets agreed on this. So it wasn't just one guy mouthing off. The voice of Moscow had reported the launch of a Sputnik rocket with no mention of a passenger and later said to have had retro rockets fire in the wrong way, making recovery efforts unsuccessful. This was the same time i think i see a narrative yeah forming here so was this a failed manned space flight hurriedly covered up when things broke bad according to yuri gagarin's own biography these rumors likely started due to some of these rocket missions being equipped with dummies and human voice tape recordings to test if the radio worked but then why would these cadets believe that there were really men up there they All would know it's a dummy also why would it be why would you just, why would you put a voice of like a tape of a human voice just talking? This is what Yuri Gagarin said. Um, it was just to test the radio working. Sure, but surely you would use like the Ronettes or something. Nope. Human voice tape recordings. And uh, just a fun little factoid. The dummies um, were all called Ivan Ivanovich. They had like a little name. Ivan, son of Ivan? Yes. He's all about the Ivans. So, yeah, maybe there was some confusion, but I don't know. I don't think that they would be confused in that way. 
Do you remember the crash test dummies kind of like comic books and uh, comic strips so, and action figures? They were figures? creepy. They're I, still creepy. To I'd me. like to see a, a revival of the uh, Ivan Ivanovich brand. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Just all the different ways he can die in a spacecraft. Yeah, messed up. Those commercials in the 90s were traumatizing. What were they doing? We grew up in weird times. Well, they were teaching you to fasten your seatbelt. Because like, okay, I didn't need to see that. My mom fastened my seatbelt. I was a child. It was weird to give the crash test dummies personalities because I think <sighs> the point of a crash test dummy is that it's kind of faceless and doesn't have a family. Yeah, <laughs> Ivan Ivanovich. Well, these shady bring uh, these shady beginnings bring us the most intriguing and bizarre part of this story: the Torre Burt recordings. Oh, I've I've heard this. This is pretty harrowing yeah. stuff. Achille and Giovanni Battista Giudica Cordelia. Now, those are luchadors. <laughs> those are Italians. Uh, these are enterprising brothers in their 20s, set an, up an experimental radio station uh, for listening just outside of Turin, Italy in the late 1950s. The station was housed inside an abandoned German bunker at a site named Torre Bert, and they had been buying and repairing broken radio receivers from World War II that were being sold by the ton as like surplus. They were just trying to get rid of this stuff. So when Sputnik's launch was announced in October 1957, the brothers figured they'd try and tune in for the hell of it. But they were shocked when they actually got something weak but unmistakable, a beeping sound coming from space. Oh, my God. My God, it was unbelievable, recalled Giovanni for Vice. We were the first people in all of Europe to listen to the signal of Sputnik 1. So after that, the brothers were hooked. They were constantly tinkering with radio equipment and installed homemade antennas on their parents' apartment roof. During each launch, the brothers listened in, if they knew it was coming, recording transmissions from Sputnik 2 and Explorer 1. This is a dark version of the film October Sky. It's very dark. It's about to get darker. Because on November 28th, 1960, they caught something else. They were tuned into one of the Soviet frequencies, though there hadn't been a launch announcement. It was just habit for them to like leave it on at this point. This time, instead of just beeping, as they'd heard during the other satellite launches, they intercepted an SOS call in Morse code, which is three dots, three dashes, three dots. So it's like... Something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not a Morse coder. I'm not a Boy Scout like you. I think that was great. <laughs> you get a merit badge. Thanks. This call was being transmitted from a craft that was apparently moving away from Earth. Giovanni explained, quote, it was going very, very fast, and therefore it was moving away from the Earth at escape speed. And so it made us think that rather than bringing the vehicle back to Earth, it was moving away from Earth into space. Clearly, this couldn't be another dog like Laika because dogs don't know Morse code. You're saying it was a gorilla. <laughs> this is Coco the gorilla. <laughs> I feel like dogs don't know Morse code is like a Bailey School Kids book. Yes, yes, of course. Vampires don't eat ice cream. Dogs don't know Morse code. But anyway, they felt that at this time, the spacecraft was manned, and it was emitting a frantic distress call as it hurtled into deep space. One source even reported that the call included the words SOS to the whole world, 
in Morse code. By early 1961, the Tory Burt listening post was operational and the brothers began monitoring spacecraft flying overhead. They reportedly built a handmade movable tracking dish to follow these craft across the sky because they moved really fast. And this is just amateur, like, nerd shit? Yeah, but they knew what they were doing. Obviously. They were super nerds. But yeah, they were they were amateur radio guys. I love these guys. Mm-hmm. They also claim to have devised methods of filtering noise from their recordings of spacecraft signals, determining whether a transmission came from the craft or ground control, calculating the craft's orbital path, and locating the radio frequencies used by Soviet tracking stations. Well, why, why wasn't NASA hiring these guys? They did visit NASA. That's later. <laughs> In February 1961, they again picked up the sounds of distress coming from an undocumented space flight. In a recording that contains the sound of heavy breathing and the rapid heartbeat of a seemingly dying cosmonaut. Mm. In fact, a leading cardiologist in the area by the name of Professor Dogliotti reviewed the recording and confirmed that the heartbeats sound like those of a dying person. Hmm. Well, I, I can see how that would be hard to tell over like a like a radio transmission in 1950 something. But this is 61. But oh, yeah. ne never mind then. The radios were great. <laughs> Here's a little clip. That sounds like heartbeats. <laughs> Yuri Gagarin made his historic journey into space on April 12th, 1961, orbiting the Earth for a couple hours until successfully re-entering, becoming the first documented human to orbit the Earth. They did it on the first try. Yes! Great so job! So they say. But the Soviets didn't stop there, and neither did the Judica Cordelia brothers' disturbing radio transmissions which we'll listen to more of after the break. Oh, no. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Listen to the Fool series now, wherever you get your podcasts. Connecticut's first ever paranormal convention is coming this summer. Paracon! Paracon will be held Saturday and Sunday, July 24th and 25th, 2021, at the Haunted Ansonia Armory in Ansonia, Connecticut. And guess who's going to be there? This haunted weekend will feature special guests, paranormal investigations, seminars, panels, vendors, exhibits, and much, much more. Paracon is presented by Nick Grossman, head of Ghost Storm Investigations and collector of some of the rarest paranormal artifacts in the world, and Charles Rosenay, founder of Stratford's Fright Haven and director of Tours of Terror, ghost tours to Transylvania, Prague, England, and all over haunted Connecticut. Yeah, we've been to Fright Haven. Uh, when we went, he had a... One, one of the rooms was... Uh all clown themed it was a bunch of scary clown stuff but you wore 3d glasses it was pretty cool that was the saint valentine's day massacre wasn't it uh, yes they do seasonal offerings not just halloween that was the saint valentine's day massacre it was a beautiful date our first valentine's day so who will be at paracon 
Guests include paranormal investigator Barry Pirro, author Bill Hall, who you may remember wrote The World's Most Haunted House, subject of episodes 17 and 18 of the podcast. Yep. Go check those out. Some of our very best work, Mm -hmm. I think. And us. Yeah, we'll be there too, in person to chat all things scary. So come on down and meet us. I guess I spoiled your surprise there. But yes, we will have a booth at Paracon and we're so damn excited that we'll be there. Yeah. Do you like to shop? Well, they'll have their own bizarre bazaar. Haunt artists, horror authors, cryptozoologists, artisans, occult sellers, and much more will be there. So bring some bones, the money kind, and a good pair of walking shoes. You can bring the other kind of bones, too, if you if you want. Yeah, maybe you can sell them. Who knows? We hope to see you there. Get your tickets now for only $9.99 per day through May 1st at www.paracon.org. Is that a special deal for us, or is that just how cheap tickets are? That's just how cheap tickets are until May 1st. Then it goes up like five bucks. Oh, you guys. Still this, still a deal. This is a bargain at any price. <laughs> Paracon, Connecticut's first paranormal convention. Welcome back. When last we left you, the Judica Cordiglia brothers were listening in on Soviet transmissions and they'd already gotten a little more than they'd bargained for. Um, and from what you said before the break, Carrie, I guess that wasn't the last. I know that wasn't the last of it. I've heard some really fucked up stuff. <laughs> yeah. A particularly haunting message was intercepted by the brothers on May 17th, 1961, barely a month after Yuri Gagarin's record-making flight, and just days after American astronaut Alan Shepard managed to become the first United States astronaut to orbit the Earth. The message stated, quote, conditions growing worse. Why don't you answer? We are going slower. The world will never know about us. So that's haunting. <laughs> the, that, those last words are especially mm-hmm. haunting. The brothers at this point staunchly believed that the Soviets were launching people into space, losing them to technological malfunction and covering up the accidents so as not to reveal their failure. Another recording made in November 1962 seemed to document a space capsule misjudging re-entry and bouncing off the Earth's atmosphere and back into space. Bouncing off the Earth's atmosphere? Something like that. And back into space? So then he just went out forever? Yeah, just like the other guy that was rocketing into deep space that they caught. This is the movie Gravity with a uh, sad ending for for so many people. Yeah. The most famous of the brothers' recordings, and the most disturbing, came in November 1963. Yeah, this is the one I've heard before. Now, a lot of places list this as the May 1961 recording, but I couldn't find a separate one for that. I'm going to stick with it to being uh, 1963 just for ease, but it could have happened earlier. (laughs) I really couldn't figure out how to figure it out. So, 1961 or 1963. This would have been the first woman in space. You can hear the distress in her voice. um, And I can't understand what she's saying because it's Russian. But uh, you do find translated transcripts around. Uh, I'll play a clip from it and then I'll read the full translated transcript afterward. 
What's she saying, Carrie? Now, that was just a clip. This is a a little over two minutes long. Um, But the full transcript that I found is, come in, come in, come in, listen, listen, come in, come in, come in, talk to me, talk to me. I am hot. I am hot. What? 45? What? 45? 50? Yes. 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 Breathing. Breathing. Oxygen. Oxygen. I am hot. Isn't this dangerous? It's all, isn't this dangerous? Yes, yes, yes. How is this? What? Talk to me. How should I transmit? Yes, yes. What? Our transmission begins now. 41, this way. Our transmission begins now. 41, this way. Our transmission begins now. 41. Yes, I feel hot. I feel hot. It's all... It's hot. I feel hot. I feel hot. I can see a flame. What? I can see a flame. I can see a flame. I feel hot. 32, 32, 41, 41. Am I going to crash? Yes. Yes. I feel hot. I feel hot. I will re-enter. I will re-enter. I am listening. I feel hot. Why all the numbers? I assume there's some sort of call sign or... Or a reading? Yeah, something like that. And what about our transmission begins now? I don't know. I don't know what it means. It's weird. Hearing the transcript doesn't sound like a person in distress. It almost does sound like a test pattern or something. Although I don't know why they would be... Like, your test pattern shouldn't be, it's getting hot in here, I think we're going to re-enter the atmosphere. Yeah, that's a lot. And also, if, if you hear it, um, it doesn't sound like it's just repeated audio. It sounds like she's she's repeating it actively. So it's very disturbing. Um, the last recording I've read about is from April 1964, when another cosmonaut was killed as his capsule burned up in the Earth's atmosphere. So it seemed like that was an issue for Soviets getting their cosmonauts back safely. Um Now, since the original events of the 1960s, there's been a lot of critical analysis of the Torah Burt recordings. And a lot of people do cast doubt on their provenance. Okay. Uh, There are a few issues frequently brought up by those skeptical of the brothers' recordings. So some say that audio transcripts show that none of the cosmonauts supposedly trained Soviet Air Force pilots followed standard communication protocols to the Air Force, like identifying themselves when speaking. Now, like you said, I don't know what the numbers mean. I don't know if it's a temperature reading, maybe, like Celsius, or I don't know. I don't know if that's their number or their call sign or whatever, but this source seemed to think it wasn't correct. The recordings contain disjointed sentences and seeming grammatical errors, though the Soviet space program generally only used highly trained, um, well-educated Russian native speakers. Some of the scientific stuff doesn't seem to match up to what was the original intention of the Vostok space program. And that was just to get Soviet cosmonauts into low Earth orbit. They didn't necessarily want them or they didn't say they wanted them to reach the escape velocity necessary to leave Earth's orbit. But there could have been an error or miscalculation. I mean, who knows? Mm hmm. But they just wanted to get as low as possible that's still orbit and get them back. Back up into orbit? No. Back down. Get them up into low Earth orbit and get them back down safely. I see. 
So they weren't they weren't trying for anything past that, at least initially. I've seen some testimony on places like Reddit mm-hmm. <laughs> that the Russian seems to be spoken with an Italian accent, but I don't know how to verify that myself. Oh, um, if any listeners know <laughs> what Russian sounds like in an Italian accent. Yeah, it's like you need to know Russian and you need to know that it's not the right Russian. Um, so I also have to take that with like a could be a troll grain of salt. Um, sure. But, you know, maybe that's true. I don't know. Because that would look really bad for the veracity <laughs> of the, these recordings the, the Italian brothers found. Mm-hmm. The brothers do still have their believers. Um, neither has ever wavered in their belief of what they captured in their recordings. And Giovanni attests to this day that they did hear these lost Russian cosmonauts and they weren't fake recordings or anything like that. Uh, in an interview with Vice just last year, the author attests that, quote, after listening to Giovanni answer my questions and then reading through the translations and spending hours assembling the story, I came to the conclusion that fictionalization is probably beyond him. <laughs> Meaning he's just dumb? No, he's very technical. For Giovanni, this this the uh, quote continues, for Giovanni, the technology was the adventure and the mysterious Mayday calls were a side note. So for better or worse, I offer you Giovanni Giudica Cordelia's story, convinced he was telling us the truth. Now, what if the technology was the point, but also they couldn't actually build anything that would pick up, you know, transmissions. And so they made this bullshit up to um, you know, look cool and impress their nerd friends. Maybe some people think that. Um, so the but the journalist from Vice was at least convinced that Giovanni was being honest in his telling of the story. The Torah Burt recordings lie firmly in the maybe pile of the lost cosmonaut history. They have not been proven nor disproven. Um, and there are other stories like those surrounding some fish, fictional cosmonauts named Ivan Istonichkov and Andrei Mikoyan that were confirmed to be hoaxes. Hmm. So I will say that the story presented by the brothers was thought to be so against their pro-Soviet propaganda machine that Radio Moscow issued an official communique about the recordings in April 1965. Wow, and what did they have to say? They're real. Am I doing this in a Russian accent? Yeah, give me Gwendon Moonbringer. <clears throat> in March of the present year, the Milan Daily Courier de la Sera published an article about Soviet cosmonauts who perished in space. The article is based on statements made by the Judicle Cornelia brothers, who allegedly received signals and recorded conversations in space by a number of Soviet cosmonauts who did not return from their flights. Two years ago, the same nonsense could be found in the pages of the Washington Post. <laughs> that rag. <laughs> a few organs of the bourgeois press, in an attempt to give their cosmic lies an appearance of truthfulness, mentioned data provided by the American Information Services. These services could have provided in confidence to the journalist information about these dead cosmonauts. However, such data do not reflect the truth. And with this statement, we could close the whole matter. But we want to add a few words about the Judica Cordelia brothers. Oh, takedown. <laughs> this is not the first time that they get involved in the reception of these signals. No one can doubt the safety of our space vehicles anymore. That's most of the uh, 
statement put out. And another thing about these guys, they're pretty good at tracking our signals. <laughs> but you know what? They're jerks. So no one can deny that there's <laughs> that our sp- ships are safe. What? Mm-hmm. That, that thought doesn't track. The Torbert recordings are not the end of the possible proof for the lost cosmonaut theory. Some believe Major General Vladimir Sergeyevich Ilyushin. Oh boy. <laughs> Woo. You, you took that one on in a workmanlike fashion. Thank you. I, I was impressed with your wherewithal. Uh, Ilyushin was a Soviet general and test pilot. They think he was possibly really the first man in space. The 1999 film of the Cosmonaut cover-up alleges that Ilyushin beat Gagarin into orbit, but a guidance malfunction forced the pilot to crash land in China, where, though surviving, it was decided that the critical injuries suffered upon landing were too serious to report the mission as a complete success. The Russians didn't want to be like, yeah, the guy's in a coma, but we did it, guys, you know. Was he okay? How come he never came forward and was like, it was me? Or did he and then was murdered? He did survive. He became an Air Force pilot, um, but he never came forward saying that this was true. Of course, he was in the Air Force. He might not have been able to do that. Right. He would have lost his job and probably would have, um, you know, fallen off a balcony or died after eating some soup or um, blown up in his car or something like that. Yeah. Suicided. By the time of his alleged emergency landing, news had leaked out among foreign communist correspondents in Moscow that a planned space flight was either ongoing or imminent. So just one day after Ilyushin's failed mission, a hurried decision was made in Moscow to launch the backup pilot, Yuri Gagarin. Oh. Data sought by the filmmakers of 2009's Fallen Idol, the Yuri Gagarin Conspiracy, uh, from the Turn Island CIA tracking station, supposedly recorded Ilyushin's failed mission, but it was not released to the documentarians, even though they asked for, you know, like Freedom of Information Act concessions. Wow. I wonder what, uh, does anyone say what Gagarin's kind of attitude about this was? Was he like, he's, does he feel bad about it? Or is he like, yeah, I'm the guy. I'm the fucking best. I think he's mostly the guy. He did die young in a plane accident, I think. Um, but he was like a national hero. He was big at the time. They didn't allow him to go back to space because they were worried that he would die. And oh, I thought that he would just be too popular out there and he'd become the king of space. <laughs> no, that that he would die um, in a, an accident of some sort. Um, but he was allowed to work in the Air Force or do piloting, and that's how he died. I don't know why they would think that. When he went up into space, officially, they had a 100% success record. Mm, interesting. Why would they be worried about it? Eventually, though the United States lost the fight to get into orbit first, they did win the battle to get to the moon with the historic Apollo 11 flight landing in July 1969. Some claim, though, that the Soviets undertook a last-minute attempt to beat the Americans to the moon landing, which allegedly occurred on July 3, 1969, and ended in an explosion that destroyed the launch pad and killed the cosmonauts on board. So they were like, we think the Americans are doing this. We just got to try to, we, sir, we're not ready. Squeeze it we're out like a week earlier. We're definitely not ready. No, let's throw one together. Mm-hmm. While the alleged facts be- behind some of these possible failed attempts are sketchy, there is one thing that is for certain. The Soviet Union did erase many people from history down to literally airbrushing them out of official photos. Mm-hmm. This is not just the cosmonaut program. This is the whole Soviet Union. 
um, a series of photographs called the 1961 Sochi photos of the cosmonaut team was originally released in the 70s. And this kind of proves the photo doctoring because, funnily enough, uh, Soviet news managers lost track of which versions of photos that had already been published. <laughs> so they re-released them after alteration. So there were versions that had all the guys in it and versions that was, was missing a guy. The dead guy? <laughs> well, um, some of these group shots included men that had not yet flown, or at least had not done so publicly. Under Gorbachev's glasnost, and this is kind of the word for their dissemination of information in the final years of the Soviet Union, the names of the fates of the men who had been censored from history was mostly revealed. Um, the erased men generally had either misbehaved and been expelled or even developed disqualifying medical conditions. And that like didn't make them perfect enough to be cosmonauts. So they just erased them from history. Wow. Not not that much better than than sweeping deaths under the rug. Yeah. One man, Grigory Grigorievich Nelyubov, fell into disgrace after his expulsion and committed suicide in 1966. So this did have intense consequences on some of the men that were erased. Well, 66, the photo might not have, maybe that photo was doctored after he killed himself. No, I think this was one of those 1961 photos. Gotcha. He's like, I wasn't in the picture! <laughs> Another photograph originally showed a group of 22 people, including 16 cosmonauts, family members, trainers, so on. How many did they get down to? Uh, up to six cosmonauts were removed from the image. I guess there were varying versions. Um, another picture judged to be from the mid-60s includes a deleted Voshkod backup cosmonaut from the back of the image. And I wasn't able to find the name of him, so who knows what happened to him. Uh, considering they really did engage in historical censorship, does it seem too far-fetched to believe that the Soviet Union did cover up their failures during the space race? No, of course not. <laughs> that doesn't seem far-fetched at all to me. Yeah, I mean... There's a lot of talk about cover-ups in the United States alone um, on certain things, but when it comes to places like Soviet Russia or even Nazi Germany, any failure was seen as just a failure of the entire enterprise of what they were doing, their their entire idealism, and that was not allowed to get out to the public for fear that people would see it as weakness and try to take over the government and things like that. Well, and when you look at the space race, especially, it's all just PR on both mm -hmm. sides, right? It's PR to your people going, look at how you're on the, you're on the side of the best ones, right? We're going to, we're getting into space first, baby. Um, and soon you're going to be living in space. It's going to be the best. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, to the Soviets, it looks like, hey, we can put nukes anywhere. So it's all important, like PR work. Mm hmm. And so from that angle, uh, of course, if you had no morals or scruples, you would want to get everything done really quickly. So maybe you make some slipshod decisions along the way and you don't tell the public about the, the, the bumps in the road because that's not part of the messaging. That's not part of the PR. Yeah. Um, I'll also say that the way, and this is just a nature of how big Russia is and how many people live there. Um, in both world wars, the kind of Russian strategy was just to throw bodies at, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't have the best trained army. They had like, they the, had the most army, maybe the worst equipped <laughs> army, right? But they would just throw, uh, bodies at a problem until the problem went away. Maybe they kind of took the same approach to the space program. 
Maybe. That said, you know, I, I don't know. Again, listeners, get at us if there's an Italian accent <laughs> in that Russian. Because yeah, any Russian listeners who know about Italian accents, let us know. If if we if we only have those brothers' recordings to go on, I don't know if any of these specific cosmonaut deaths are you know happen. well we might have more but the u.s hasn't released them you know but that doesn't mean that this kind of thing didn't i would be surprised it's a little surprising if you think about it that the first attempt they made at manned human spaceflight worked well uh along those lines one night in march 1961 a severely burned man was brought to a dr vladimir goyakovsky under the name Sergeyev Ivanov. Sorry, Ivan Ivanov? <laughs> Ivan Ivan Sergeyev or Sergeyev Ivanov. The doctor wasn't given much information, just asked to attempt to treat him. And later it was discovered that the man was Valentin Bodorenko, a cosmonaut trainee who died that night after being caught in an oxygen fire. His death was quickly hushed up. Oh, so there's confirmation of them doing exactly this kind of thing. Wait, yeah, what? he wasn't in space. Um, but yeah, they did that. Another death recounted in the book Starman by Jamie Doran and Piers Bizzoni discusses Vladimir Komarov, a cosmonaut who knew he was about to die by crashing full speed into Earth, his body turning molten on impact. Molten? Mm -hmm. They don't even do that in like Invincible. <laughs> The death was revealed by KGB officer Vinyamin Ivanovich Rosayev. Another Ivanovich! Guys, <laughs> come on! With previous reporting by Yaroslav, Gol Yaroslav Golovanov in Pravda. NPR reported, quote, Once the Soyuz began to orbit the Earth, the failures began. Antennas didn't open properly. Power was compromised. Navigation proved difficult. The next day's launch had to be canceled. And worse, Komarov's chances for a safe return to Earth were dwindling fast. Soviet Premier Alexei Kozygin called on a video phone to tell him he was a hero. Komarov's wife was also on the call to talk about what to say to their children. They had a video phone? I guess, yeah. This is from NPR, so I'm, I'm buying it, you know. Well, I think the biggest scandal here is that they kept the video phone from the public <laughs> for so long. You can find the recording of when Komarov's capsule began to fail, but this is a verified real recording of a man knowingly going to his death, um, not like the possibly hoaxed Torbert recordings. So that little layer of possible fiction makes it a little easier, and I just don't feel great about playing it here. I've never been into stuff like that. I'm realizing now that's the one that I've heard, and it, it, it haunts me. So, his? Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a man's voice, Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you want to find it, it's out there for some reason, if you want to hear it. In the end, some translators can hear him say heat is rising in the capsule. And he also uses the word killed. As the capsule began its descent and parachutes failed to open, U.S. listening posts in Turkey picked up the sound of him crying in rage, cursing the people who had put him inside a botched spaceship. Yeah. So, Sean, on that note, do you think there was a lost cosmonaut cover-up? And do you think the Tora Burt recordings are real? I don't know if the Tora Burt recordings are real. I think we just found out in the last few minutes that the Soviets did lose cosmonauts and try to cover them up. Mm -hmm. So 
Uh, it wouldn't surprise me, especially given the guys who have been doctored out of some of those photographs. There are some photos we don't know why the guys are missing from, right? Yeah, we don't know exactly what they did to get cut out. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if some of those, you know, vanished Air Force pilots from those uh, photos died in tiny metal boxes in uh, low Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. And like I said, maybe that's just the. It wasn't a. The the Soviet Union wasn't like great to its <laughs> people, yeah. you know. Uh, and I think they solved problems by throwing bodies at them sometimes. Uh, so it's not out of the realm of possibility. No, it definitely isn't. Yeah. I, it's the Torah Burt recordings are very uh, interesting, and I wonder if those brothers uh, did hoax it. But but we don't, you know, have too much to go on either way in those. Yeah, I really go back and forth on those because. If they did hoax it, what made them think of doing that? You know, what made them think that there was a, a secret cosmonaut program that people didn't know about? And I don't know. Well, the the tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States and the stuff around that, you know, the... I guess why didn't they figure the United States was doing the same thing, you know? Well, they could believably pick up... Rec well, that doesn't really necessarily make sense. Yeah. I was going to uh, say they're closer to Russia so they could pick up Soviet transmissions easier. Yeah, I don't know. But if we're talking about people who Space, are orbiting yeah. the Earth, then I don't think that matters much. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, if they wanted to hoax that America was doing it, just have people in English, you know. It's just such a choice to hoax Russians being covered up and dying in space specifically. I don't know. Yeah. I go back and forth on it. I yeah. really do. And I actually think it's interesting that the official Soviet uh, release seemed to imply that they had actually picked up, like, transmissions and signals from Soviet satellites. It's like, these. this isn't the first time these brothers have interfered. Yeah, they, they caught Sputnik 1 and 2, I think, so. So at that point, I mean, I'm not sure why you go the extra mile of doing the whole uh, hoax with the, with the burning lady, although, why does anyone... Hoax anything. Hoax anything, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the persistent mystery of the possible lost cosmonauts has fueled minds for decades, and the conspiracy theory has been the basis for several novels, films like Apollo 18, and even songs like Wolf Parade's Yulia, which was confirmed to be about a lost cosmonaut, and has lyrics like, point up to the dark above you as they edit me from history, I'm 20 million miles from my comfortable home, and space is very cold, Yulia. So here's a, a lovely little clip to take us into our short break. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. 
We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Lots of things are a struggle right now. School, work, even something as simple as going to the grocery store. It could feel overwhelming. But one thing that shouldn't be overwhelming is accessing mental and emotional care. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is the leader in online counseling with over 4,000 licensed counselors on the site and over 500,000 people who have gotten counseling to date. The mission of BetterHelp is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I've been using BetterHelp for the better part of this year, and honestly, I don't know how I would have gotten through 2020 without it. And, of course, Sean and Poe. When I need to talk to my counselor, I can just text her and I can schedule chats, phone calls, or video calls for longer sessions. This means I have flexibility to set a session during the week, or during busy weeks, I can just shoot her a message here and there when I have time. Take control of your mental and emotional well-being. BetterHelp is a great place to start. For 10% off your first month's subscription of BetterHelp, go to our podcast link at www.betterhelp.com slash scary and see how good it can feel to push past the struggle and find hope in a new day. That's www.betterhelp.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Get professional counseling anytime, anywhere, because you deserve to be happy. Apropos for our discussion today, it's fear of the final frontier. What about the crushing void of space (laughs) is now all I'm going to think about today. So uh, why not? Well, whip out your 2021 bingo cards, kids. If you had falling space debris might crash land into a populated area, killing a bunch of people, check it off now. You would have thought 2020 would have been the year for the falling space debris. Nope. The 46,000-pound Chinese rocket Long March 5B recently launched the first module of the country's new space station into orbit. Great. That sounds great. After the core separated from the rest of the rocket, it should have followed a predetermined path into the ocean. Cool, 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 cool. But it made it into orbit instead. What? Currently orbiting the planet every 90 minutes at about 17,324 miles per hour. That seems, Gary, correct me if I'm wrong. Seems like quite a speed. (laughs) And now it's starting to tumble and slowly lose altitude. The fast speed of the core makes it impossible to predict where or when it will land, but it's expected to make landfall in a few days. How big did you say this thing was? Like 10 stories tall, 46,000 pounds, something like that. Oh, great. Quote, U.S. Space Command is aware of and tracking the location of the Chinese Long March 5B in space, but its exact entry point into the Earth's atmosphere cannot be pinpointed until within hours of its re-entry, which is expected around May 8th, Lieutenant Colonel Angela Webb, U.S. Space Command Public Affairs, told CBS News. Okay, so hours of within hours of re-entry. So it sounds like, I mean, we might have up to 
close to half a day to uh, prepare and get out of town if it turns out that uh, this 10-story building is going to land on our condo. Yeah, if they f- if they get it right, if they're one degree off, it might land in San Francisco or something. We don't know. Uh, the, it has potential to land in the U.S., Mexico, Central America, South America, India, China, Australia, uh, basically anywhere. <laughs> but don't lose sleep just yet. It will most likely land in the ocean as it makes up over 70% of the planet. But since it is falling uncontrollably, there is a risk it will land in a metropolitan area. As it's one of the largest space objects to ever re-enter uncontrolled, we have no way of knowing what kind of damage that would cause. So as we said before, the U.S. Space Command is tracking the trajectory with Defense Department spokesperson Mike Howard saying in a statement that he expects the Chinese Long March 5B's rocket appearance around May 8th, as previously mentioned. Jonathan McDowell, astronomer at the Center for Astrophysics and current Twitter space debris soothsayer at Planet 4589. (laughs) He's getting a lot of uh, work the last couple days, is he? He recently posted that, quote, I don't think people should take precautions. The risk that there will be some damage or that it would hit someone is pretty small. Not negligible. It could happen. But the risk is that but the risk that it will hit you is incredibly tiny. And so I would not lose one second of sleep over this on a personal threat basis. There are much bigger things to worry about. Yep, that's almost exactly what I tried to tell Carrie last night when she first revealed this information to me and said she couldn't sleep. <laughs> well, sleep well, listeners. And hopefully we can all breathe a sigh of relief about this next week. Hopefully. Depend. I mean, this comes out on May 6th, right? So it might already be down by the time you're hearing this. If you're not Johnny on the spot with these uploads, and you really should be. <laughs> so good luck, everyone. Yeah, hopefully we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. That's right. Special thanks to our tier three and four patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, and Robin McCabe. We love you all. <laughs> See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean McCabe and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. 
do not go any further. Turn around, go home.